Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Well, today with sophisticated methods of censorship, you can put someone literally in a digital gulag, right? You could type all the things that you want. You could write all the articles you want, but no one's actually going to see them. So you're effectively silenced. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, we have one of those guests that make me pinch myself when I wake up in the morning, just to make sure that I really know the man and that also I think I have the honor that I can call him a friend. Our guest today is the physician, psychiatrist, author, and most recently free speech expert and probably also an expert on the history of modern totalitarianism, Aaron Cariati. Good afternoon, Aaron, and welcome on our show. Thanks, Mariana. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for finding the time to zoom in. And I should say probably welcome back as some of our more committed, the committed audience that we have, the ones that all that follow us, whatever we do, uh, they know that you are already streamed here talking about mental health and the college population. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. And how, how are you? And how's everyone at the, I'm a big fan of the Austin Institute, the work that you're doing, Mark Regneris, the other scholars there. So thank you. I think I'm good. Everyone is good. We're very pleased with how the Austin Institute is doing. Of course, it was a highlight was having you here, having you here with us uh, to give the talks and also to talk yeah. about with the doctors, the local doctors. It was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah. So we look forward to having you back and we'll make that happen. I know that you're limiting your travel, but we'll try to have you back. We'll find a good excuse so you can come with your wife. Now, I hope that you like the title of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. And I would like to start this episode by asking you if there is anything, in your opinion, that we should not talk about. No, I think we should talk about any topic that is on your mind, any topic that's on the listener's mind. I'm keen to talk about censorship because censorship is the opposite of this podcast. It's what we can't talk about. And there's been various things that the powers that be, including people within our own government, have decided over the last several years that we're not permitted to talk about. And they've worked hard to censor opinions, to censor information online, especially on social media, YouTube, platforms like that. And I'm very concerned about that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm ha literally happy to talk about anything and everything. So I know that you are an expert on this and the fact that there is censorship. And so for, you know, I would like you to start by saying, where is the censorship of today from your perspective as a psychiatrist on the one hand and as, a, as an academic on the other hand? So maybe in these two realms. Yeah. So censorship is coming from our institutions, including our universities. There are certain things in a university climate that you're simply not permitted to say. Whatever free speech codes might be available on paper, they're not actually backed up by the university. There's all kinds of subtle ways that an individual can be punished for saying the wrong thing in class. And you've probably had conversations about censorship within academia on this podcast. So we don't need to maybe belabor that. There's censorship happening from these large social media 
conglomerates. It's clear that Google is censoring. It's clear that there's censorship on their platform, YouTube. It's clear that there's censorship happening on still on Twitter, even though things have improved somewhat, and certainly on Facebook and the other major social media platforms. There's even censorship occurring in places like WhatsApp. End-to-end encrypted text messaging cannot be directly censored by the company, but what they are censoring is the number of times you can share an article. If the article is a form of disfavored speech or the content is something that the platform or their handlers in government do not like. So we know now that that was occurring on platforms like WhatsApp, which most people consider to be me sending private messages or sharing an article or sharing a podcast privately with my intimate friends and family, my direct contacts. And yet even in that very personal form of communication, there was censorship and and limiting the number of times that eyeballs could get on a particular idea or be exposed to a particular article. So those things have been happening. I think most people probably realize that these private companies or these universities uh, have been censoring. There's all kinds of censorship that goes on in the workplace too, in subtle ways. But to me, the most concerning form of censorship is censorship that's directed and orchestrated by the government. So that's where I'm focusing my energies now. I'm part of a major free speech case that's currently before the Supreme Court. It's called Missouri v. Biden. The state of Missouri and Louisiana, along with five private plaintiffs, of which I'm one, have sued the federal government and named at least a dozen federal agencies as defendants for coercing and pressuring social media companies to censor content that the government disfavors. And initially, when we filed this lawsuit, we believe that most of the censorship was happening around critiques of our COVID policies. And certainly that was a major target of censorship. But as we've uncovered more and more in the process of discovery of subpoenaed documents, we have 20,000 pages of communications now between government agencies and social media companies. Also uh, information that's been released in the Twitter files and uh, new information that was just released last week by some journalists regarding kind of the origins of this censorship apparatus. All of this has shown very clearly that it's not just COVID-related information that was censored. It's not just credible doctors and scientists whose voices were silenced for challenging the government's preferred policies like lockdowns or school closures or vaccine mandates or mask mandates. But it turns out that many other government agencies besides the White House and the Surgeon General and the CDC and public health agencies were involved in censorship. So for example, the State Department was involved in censoring Americans who criticized our foreign policy, who criticized our withdrawal from Afghanistan or particular forms of support that we've given in the Ukraine war. Even the Treasury Department was censoring Americans who criticized the United States monetary policy, you know, and blamed inflation on bad government policies. So You take virtually any issue of importance in American public life, and the government had its thumb on the scale. We also have evidence now that they were censoring abortion-related content, content related to gender ideology. Can I, may I interrupt you one second? I'm smiling, not because this is funny. This is absolutely not funny, and I'm a big fan of your work as someone, you know, as a lawyer, as someone who has TA'd a course in civil liberties in Princeton, and so as 
studied the jurisprudence of this country in free speech as a foreigner that knows that only in this country we have a constitution where is where the citizens have their own rights and they just limit what the state can do, which is the opposite of every European constitution where the state allows citizens to do something or, or give them rights. So, But the reason I'm smiling is that when you, you started off by having as an enemy, quote unquote, only your university, then we <laughs> extended it to a couple of federal agencies. Now we're going full on, you know? And so this yeah. is also something that I really like about you. And when I say, you know, I'm proud to call you a friend, is you're fearless. Fearless, not, not in the sense that you just want to pick up fights that are not yours, but as these things have entered your life, you decided not to be silent. And I think this is something to be praised and a great example also for our younger listeners. So that said, how did you come across all this censorship? What was your path yeah. in Discover and then becoming the expert on the how we have end-to-end decrypted messages that are actually censored by sure. other people? So for me, this began when I was criticizing some of our government's preferred pandemic policies. I criticized the lockdowns in 2020 in a piece in public discourse, showing basically, this is me putting on my psychiatrist hat, that the mental health harms of these prolonged lockdowns needed to be taken into account in our public health agencies and our public health authorities. The so-called experts were ignoring these massive mental health harms from lockdowns and school closures. Then in 2021, I criticized vaccine mandates, starting with university vaccine mandates. I challenged my own institution. I was the director of medical ethics at UC Irvine, and I challenged UC Irvine's vaccine mandate, actually the entire University of California vaccine mandate in federal court on constitutional grounds. And the very first interview, it turns out, that I did after I filed that lawsuit was with an independent journalist named Allison Morrow. Allison was a two-time Emmy award-winning journalist at CBS, so working in mainstream journalism. She left and went to work for the Washington State, got out of television journalism, but continued her own podcast that she basically ran out of her home. So it was a small operation, but you know, being done by a very competent journalist. And she and I did an interview just on the ethics of vaccine mandates, ethical and legal issues. I didn't talk about vaccine safety. I didn't talk about vaccine efficacy. I just talked about, uh, from my expertise in medical ethics, the ethics of requiring this and mandating it and overriding informed consent, which is a, a foundational principle of medical ethics. YouTube censored that video. They took it down, which was not surprising. There was a lot of censorship going on on anything related to vaccines or, or criticism of vaccine policy at the time. But not only that, Allison uh, was working for the state of Washington at that point, I think for their parks department. And her employer basically told her, you take down that video off of other places where she had posted it, like Rumble. You take down that interview with Cariotti or we're going to fire you. She refused to take down the video and ended up losing her job. I ended up losing my job at the University of California as well. So both of us were both censored and fired simply for having a conversation and, and raising public questions where, about this particular policy. If I may, just were you fired because you just expressed an opinion or was it was there an attempt at convincing you to uh, rephrase your opinion? Like, how well, did that? So I was I was allegedly fired for noncompliance with the vaccine mandate that I was challenging in federal court. So I was allegedly fired for not getting the vaccine. But I say allegedly because 
Twice the university rejected my medical exemption signed by my physician. And I, I know as a fact that they made accommodations for other faculty members to work remotely during the pandemic in order to allow them to decline vaccination. And in my case, I already had natural immunity from having acquired COVID early on in the pandemic. I knew that the vaccine carried uh, some degree of risk, but really no benefit um, since I already had robust immunity. And that was my reason for declining it. And I, I also wanted to challenge a policy that was steamrolling other people that was causing nurses that I had worked with for 15 years to be fired. Nurses who had worked every day during the pandemic but had concerns about the vaccine, were getting fired. Students were getting kicked out of school because they had concerns about the vaccine and they felt they were in a low risk group in terms of COVID risks. So I didn't like the fact that this policy was steamrolling anyone who raised their hand and asked questions. I didn't like the fact that this policy was overriding that principle of informed consent, which I taught in lecture two every year in the required ethics course for the medical students. You know, there is something interesting that the title of our podcast comes from the title of one of Professor Bujatiski's most, most famous books. Um, it is a double, double negative, right? What we yeah. can't not know. What you know. can't not know. Yeah. Right. And book. so the voice, the voice of conscience. And somehow your story tells me that it was the voice of your conscience just made you, urged you to speak, right? Like the fire burning. Well, what what I can't you, not right? say. Right. Um, right. That. So I, yeah, I don't know if it's fearlessness or insanity, but you know, I was bothered honesty? by the fact Can it be that honesty? I had been fired. I was, I was a bit bothered by the fact that I had been censored so many times and I had been throttled on many of these platforms. That was, that was only one occasion among many. And there's much more subtle forms of censorship that were, that were happening on places like Twitter as well. And so when we started getting hints that it wasn't just the private platforms that were doing this, but they were doing it at the behest of the government, then that's a clear First Amendment violation. The government, in this case, set up some government cutouts, what some people have called government-organized NGOs or gongos, places like the Atlantic Council and Graphica and the Stanford Internet Observer Observatory and an outfit up at the University of Washington that looked like private entities, but actually they were staffed by former military and intelligence officials. They were funded by the federal government and they weren't actually doing legitimate you know, university-based research on disinformation. They were directly engaged and involved with censoring individuals online. So th this whole, what journalist Michael Schellenberger called the censorship industrial complex really got up and running. It started to be built around 2018 in the wake of the Trump election, in the wake of Brexit and Great Britain, the kind of anti-populist reaction to those basically adopted censorship as one of its one of its methods. So this started ramping up around 2018, but really accelerated during the pandemic. And so a lot of the censorship was focused on the 2020 election, followed immediately by COVID-related censorship in basically 2020, I would say to till 2022, but even some of that is ongoing into, into this year yeah, as well. And, and part of what is incredible and also speaks to the value of your current work is the fact that you name all these agencies and organisms. And, and I know that I can find more information if I follow your Substack and a few other people's Substack. But I know that if I Google, I wouldn't yeah, find much. That's right. Right? Like that's right. If people well, what, look for information independently without knowing what to look for, 
there is no way. So it, there is this awkward situation where it feels like nobody's learning anything because we can always Google whatever we want, right? So we live in the age yeah. of massive information, just a click yeah. away. But then that's not true. No, it's not true. I mean, one of the forms of censorship that we're seeing is deboosting certain search results. So rather than having in a sort of organic system where articles have the chance or studies have the chance of, you know, going viral or getting a lot more attention just based on the intrinsic interest that the population has and the number of times that people share this information. Instead, there's information that's really not allowed to gain traction. You're not going to find it in the Google search results. It's going to be literally on page 19 of the Google search results, even though it might actually have more web page views or more shares than something that appears on page one of the Google search results. But certain ideas basically are, the whole online information ecosystem is curated so that certain ideas are almost impossible to find unless you know exactly where to look. I'm going to follow this guy's Substack, or I'm going to find this particular article in this particular And by doing spot. so, I mean, if at least for our generation, I would think, you know, if something is number 19 on your Google search, some part of your brain already tells you, oh, that's probably not relevant. Exactly. That's probably not true. Yeah. Right? Like, that's exactly even- right. That's exact, exactly right. Yeah. So the novelist Walter Kern, who has a podcast with Matt Taibbi, one of the journalists who's done a lot of work on this, has a great metaphor. Um, he's a novelist, so he's very good at metaphor. Basically, the way the censorship apparatus works, it's like mixing a record. So you have sophisticated AI that is basically scraping data constantly from the internet, from search results, from Twitter, now known as X, Facebook, YouTube, and so forth. And this AI software can literally see what ideas are gaining traction, what ideas are taking hold. And if an idea that the government doesn't like is gaining traction, they can literally tweak algorithms, tweak search results, deboost that content so that it it's not able to organically grow and go viral. So it's like, we're just going to turn the volume down on the snare drum over here because we don't like the idea that Cariotti is putting forward. We don't like Yeah, I wonder if people Google, you know, if people Google Spain today, I wonder how soon they're going to find out the problems that they're having now with their election and the government and the fact there's been, you know, some people are out of jail. Like maybe I challenge people, you know, let's see, you can, you know, can write in a comment to the podcast, like what you find when you Google Spain and what are the first news that come up. It would be an interesting experiment to do, you know. In yeah, you, I mean, you could say the same oh. thing about Argentina. I mean, there's there's a lot of information that's basically being controlled and curated for you. And they can also turn the volume up on information that wouldn't organically grow on, on its own merits. You know, it's like we need more cowbells. Mm-hmm. So we're just <laughs> we're going to ramp up this idea that's not gaining traction by boosting it everywhere. Yeah, the one time you made a mistake in a in a short article and had, you had to, you know, retract yeah. one sentence. Yeah, exactly. Like that. That's going to be number one. Yeah, right? exactly. I would like to talk about your amazing book because there is a lot more there than your personal story and the COVID policies. I think that in your book, The New Abnormal, there's, there are a lot of facts that then become theories and can be universalized. So again, the title is The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And first, the first question that I have about this is when and why did you write it? Yeah. So I wrote the book shortly after I lost my job. 
And the book was an attempt to make sense out of what happened during the pandemic. Because what happened during the pandemic was not grounded in good science, was not grounded in sound public policy, was not grounded in any of the pre-2019 pandemic planning leading up to the emergence of this novel virus. And yet the world suddenly adopted very harmful and totally untested policies like lockdowns and school closures in 2020, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports in 2021, the universal masking, especially of small children that had known harms and uh, little to no benefits. And what I was trying to do is understand, okay, if you just look to science or public health or sound principles of public policy to make sense out of what happened, you're not going to be able to make sense out of it. So you actually have to Google Earth up and look at some of the broader economic, political, social, and cultural factors that were at work pushing this particular type of pandemic response during COVID. You had to look at who gained economically and financially. You had to look at who gained in terms of power and control over large populations and what agendas was that serving. So the book is an attempt to both understand what happened during the pandemic, but I think even more importantly, it's not so much a, a retrospective analysis of bad COVID policies. There's several books out there that do a pretty good job of that. The book is, is really trying to be forward looking and say, okay, that whole apparatus that was rolled out during this state of emergency, what I call the biomedical security state, which is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus combined with digital technologies of surveillance and control and backed up by the police powers of the state, this biosecurity model of governing during an emergency is going to be used in the future, right? One or another of these particular policies that I critique might have been rolled back, right, by the time the book was published. But that the whole infrastructure and apparatus that made that possible is still in place, just waiting for the next real or manufactured public health emergency. And we've seen efforts already to reframe other issues, environmental issues like climate change into public health issues so that a public health crisis can be declared. We saw efforts with other path pathogens like monkeypox that really didn't gain you know, much traction because they affected so few people or only a small segment of the population. But you see this sort of push to jump from one declared public health crisis to the next. We saw racism declared a public health crisis in 2020 when everyone else was locked down and the BLM protests that often turned into riots were endorsed by public health authorities. There was a group of 1,200 so-called public health experts that wrote, wrote an open letter during uh, the BLM riots basically saying, well, yes, COVID is a very serious public health emergency for which we need to shut down all of society, but we need to permit large gatherings of people for these particular protests, for this particular political or social issue, because racism is, is an even more egregious public health crisis. So this kind of approach to dealing with what should be considered political or social or economic or other domestic issues is, is in danger of sort of being medicalized such that only the experts rather than all American citizens, like all American citizens have an issue and have a stake in the issue of racism, right? All of us should be involved in 
understanding and addressing the causes of racism or environmental issues like climate. But if you declare it a public health issue and a public health emergency, then only the experts, you know, are allowed to speak on it. And the experts are allowed to do, as we saw during COVID, just about anything to uh, entire populations in order to deal with something once it is, once you convince enough people that this is truly an existential crisis for which, you know, no intervention and no radical measure is too extreme. Yeah, one of the reasons I liked your book a lot and I recommend it to our audience is, you know, I don't know if it reflects the fact that you studied philosophy growing up, but I think it shows you go, you provide a lot of facts and there are, I could quote, I have, you know, I could quote passages where you actually describe the simulation of pandemics that went on, but various things that are very similar to what we actually experienced that make us, you know, wonder if someone was in control of a lot more things that we can know or that we are allowed to know. But you combine these facts with theories of power, of totalitarianism, yeah. of politics, right? How does the state work today? And is there even a state today? Right? Because the question that political theories can ask is, does a government really matter anymore? Like at a time where our information is controlled by technology and technology is in the end of one particular organization, corporation, person. What is the role even of the legislatures that, you know, the, 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 the politicians that we elect, like how, how far can they, can they go? And so what I find fascinating is that besides these facts that you report about COVID, there are philosophers mentioned and their theories and theories about current totalitarianism that we're living on. And one of them that you've already mentioned, or one of this archetype probably of, uh, is the one about the the, uh, the state of emergency, yeah. right? Or, or the state of exception. And I was very proud that there are two philosophers that you quote extensively that share my nationality. Yeah, both, both Italian. I drew heavily on the Italian philosophers for this. You know, book. and I, I have a lot of reasons why I'm happy to be on a green card. And I hope, you know, that interviewing you is not going to put it at risk. But <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not fond of everything Italy has been doing. But yeah. I must say that you both, the Noce that we've discussed already on this podcast and Agamben have been, you know, Italians that I've studied in my earlier years. And in particular, Agamben with these theories of the homo sacer being this figure in Roman law of this sacred at this meaning of both being dedicated to the gods or cursed. Yeah. And so the, the homo sacer is this person that is basically canceled before there was a canceling, right? So you are within the law because you've been canceled, but you are outside the law because you have no right. And right. he talks about the biosecurity state. Yes. But you use a gambin and you, you use his theories to talk about this biomedical security state. So how is that different? I know you were mentioning it, but since the concept is a little difficult to, maybe we need yeah. to go a little slower for. Yeah. So I, I did draw on Agamben to talk about uh, the biosecurity or the biomedical security state. I would use both of those terms more or less synonymously, but certainly the medical establishment was intimately involved in supporting and endorsing all aspects of our COVID response in the United States and abroad in the agencies that govern the practice of medicine in the United States, the FDA, the CDC, 
the NIH, which funds most of the biomedical research in the United States, were also intimately involved in our pandemic response. Even though the response itself was at the top of the org chart was not the Department of Health and Human Services, where we find our public health agencies. It was the Department of Defense, actually, and FEMA and agencies that are usually responsible for coordinating military interventions or at the very least disaster relief interventions. And I draw Nagambin heavily in his concept of the state of exception or what we might call the state of emergency, which is the ability of the sovereign. And Agamben draws on another political philosopher, Schmidt, who basically defines the real locus of power, the real sovereign in any society, regardless of what the constitution says, is the person who's empowered to declare the state of exception or the state of emergency that in, in wartime or pandemic time, we're allowed to bracket the rules, which is exactly what happened during COVID when at the national level, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, a man named Javier Becerra, with the endorsement of the president, declared a federal state of emergency that lasted over three years, long after COVID deaths and hospitalizations were uh, any longer an issue. And at the state level, the, the governors and their, their public health delegates also declared states of emergency that lasted in some states for several years. And basically what happens when a declared state of emergency goes into effect is at the federal level, for example, the, the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he wouldn't otherwise have, including access to emergency funding. Now, in the separation of power system in the United States, Congress controls the purse strings. So if the president wants to fund something, he has to go to Congress with hat in hand asking for allocations for this or that agency or this or that project. But under a state of emergency, there's no there's no check on the use of, of certain federal funds for the executive branch. So you have the executive branch declaring a state of exception and accruing the additional extra constitutional powers that that permits and being the sole branch of government that is allowed to decide when the state of emergency is over, right? So I can, I can say or do something to increase my own power, and then I can decide when to give that power back to the judiciary or to the legislative branch. So in the last chapter of my book, I talk about some reforms that are necessary in the United States and some constitutional checks and balances that need to be put in place on declared states of emergency. So Agamemnon was very useful there because he's done all the theoretical legwork on the, the state of exception and how it functions within otherwise democratic or uh, representative governments. And, and he's basically shown that since wor World War II, the state of exception has become more and more the norm, right? More and more Western countries uh, are operating in this way for more and more areas of public life which is gradually eroding, you know, the ability of constitutional republics to function the way they were designed to function with appropriate checks and balances. Yeah, and I think that Agamben is a man, I mean, he would consider himself a man of the left, um, as far as I can recall. That's right. And, right yeah, he, he, was a, he was like, a darling of the left during the war on terror because he, in my opinion, appropriately criticized basically the emergency actions that were taken in the wake of 9-11 in the United States that increased the government powers of surveillance and control and, you know, the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security 
the Patriot Act, which was actually promulgated only a couple of weeks after you know this thousand-page piece of legislation that no one read, that basically gave the government increased exceptional powers of surveillance and control over populations. That began to build the infrastructure that around 2011 started to pivot away from the war on terror and more toward biosecurity, biodefense, war on emerging viruses that that led up to the kind of militarized uh, public health response that we saw during COVID. Yeah, and I think it became immediately controversial in Italy by declaring immediately that there was no such thing as a pandemic and ex- exactly describing that we were living under a diff- another state yeah. of exception, as did another left-wing philosopher, Italian, Massimo Cacciari, that I also think got a lot of hatred for having expressed this opinion. It's interesting, though, that these are philosophers. Now, now this, I also like the fact that you report even in your book the, the numbers from the CDC of actually how many people died of COVID and they're low enough to understand that it wasn't just a philosopher's idea, the fact that there was no pandemic. That yeah, that's right. All this, right. So it's also a scientific take that. Yeah, if you correct the, the bad statistics that came about as the result of basically overcounting COVID, Hospitals were incentivized to overcount COVID because they got more money from Medicare, which is their main source of revenue for anyone who was being treated for or who died with COVID. So they stopped making a distinction between just having a positive COVID test, which already was overcounting things because of for technical reasons that we don't need to get into. The cycle thresholds on these PCR tests were way too high and you were getting a lot of false positives. But you also had people like a young woman that I saw at UCI was hospitalized for suicidality. Uh, she was in her 20s. She's perfectly healthy. She had a positive COVID test, but virtually no, like maybe the sniffles, virtually no symptoms. She was isolated on the medical wards and she was considered a COVID case, even though she was in the hospital because she was suicidal and actually should have been on a psychiatric ward rather than on the medical ward. But, you know, that's a perfect example of the overcounting of COVID hospitalizations or the overcounting of COVID deaths. Someone who died of something entirely unrelated to COVID while they were in the hospital who happened to have a positive COVID test at some point during the admission. And so once you take away those numbers and once you recognize that basically COVID death rates for people under the age of 50 are very similar to the mortality that we see for influenza. So if you're under 50 years old, This is a virus basically analogous to the flu. If you're over 65, 70 years old, it's a virus that carries higher mortality rates. So there was a small subset of the population, the very old and frail, especially those with medical comorbidities that were at more significant risk, four or 5% risk of mortality from COVID. But basically everyone else, we were dealing with something analogous to the seasonal flu. Plus, you know, the ones that could be undercounted and here is, you know, you you do write about this as a psychiatrist are the side effects of the lockdowns and of the... Exactly. Like the kind of issues that started because of that. So those were the issues that were entirely ignored in favor of just focusing on one and only one metric, which is always going to produce... But from um, your expertise, what are the kind of things that increase? Because, I mean, we all talk about, oh, mental health issues went worse, like... Examples of how yeah. COVID policies made things worse. So during during the lockdowns, deaths by overdose, we already had a crisis of 
we had the worst drug crisis in the United States history already in 2018, 2019, where in the year 2000, we had 20,000 deaths by overdose. That had risen to 70,000 deaths by 2019. So a very serious drug crisis and drug overdose crisis. That number, 70,000, jumped to 100,000 the following year during lockdowns. And no one was talking about the 100,000 people who died of drug overdose. That was a 30% increase in one year. And you just don't see those kinds of jumps from one year to the next in psychiatric epidemiology or in addictions. We saw the same thing with alcohol-related deaths, went from 69,000 to 99,000 during lockdowns. So that, that's one example. But the other example is when you look at lockdowns, I should say one of the other many examples, when you look at lockdowns, lockdowns were initially framed as people who want to protect the elderly and protect the vulnerable versus people who only care about the economy and, you know, want things to open up for the sake of our, you know, economic productivity or for the sake of going back to work. Well, that was always a false dichotomy because we have mountains of social science and public health literature showing that with joblessness, with economic stress, you always get elevated morbidity and mortality. So it's not people who care about health versus people who care about the economy. You cannot separate them in that way. The economic harms of lockdowns and school closures, the long-term economic and health-related harms of school closures are the kind of harms that will actually be felt for decades. There's other examples too, right? When you couldn't get various medical services in 2020 because hospitals and healthcare institutions were focused only on COVID, you had missed cancer screenings, you had missed primary care appointments for you know yeah. routine things like diabetes or heart disease or whatever. So yeah, we have seen increases in all-cause mortality, which is a much better number for public health officials to be looking at than just COVID-related deaths. You want to know about the health of the population as a whole, you have to look at things like all-cause mortality. And are the policies that we're introducing having an impact, positive or negative, on the overall health of the population? And that that has to be defined broadly. Or how many new kids are born, right? The health of the population is not only... Exactly. There are so many other factors. Yeah. The law of unintended consequences, right? So there is a... Yeah. It looks like this ubris of power to want to control one thing, but you know, I, humanity is a little too complex. I should say they, they may have been unintended consequences. I'll, I'll give everyone the benefit of the doubt that nobody wanted to harm people with our COVID policies, but they weren't unforeseen consequences. Mm. My, my colleague and co-plaintiffs, Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Koldorf, for example, the authors, two, two of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, laid out a better public health plan in that particular document, and they were throttled and censored for it. We now know they were censored at the behest of Anthony Collins, Anthony Fauci, and Francis Collins, Francis Collins being the director of the NIH at the time, who called for a swift and devastating takedown of the premises of the Great Barrington Declaration, which were simply the premises of universally recognized public health principles up until 2020, when everyone threw out the rule book and, and the authors of that have been vindicated, but you weren't able actually to find much of the information from critics of the policies in 2020 and 2021. And we now know that's because of government related censorship. So you got the 
false projection of a scientific consensus where, in fact, there was very deep and, and meaningful scientific debate that needed to be aired out publicly. It made me think that, you know, you mentioned Fauci. Some of the things, again, that you mentioned in your book seem too crazy to be true of the simulations, of the idea, what if there is a new coronavirus? Or what if we try to do lockdowns? So like these things that happened before COVID, before the first case. And someone even saying, oh, but what if people will start thinking that this thing was, was came out of the a engineer lab? The engineer in the lab, yeah. Uh, they ran a yeah, tabletop so exercise to deal with that eventuality. They too, did. Before so I wanna, anyone had heard of COVID-19. I can't yeah. read the book to our audience right now because there are too many passages that I would like to read to them, but I'm just going to invite them to read it for themselves. And you, you do a good job, I think, in giving the benefit of the doubt to everyone. I was just telling the facts the way you were able to discover them and to uncover them. And so I, I really thank you for thank you. for having done this, this exceptional work. On the state of exception, you add to what Agamben said, you add, and this, I would bring your own expertise the fact that we live in the digital technology world. And so you have this last chapter of your book, the epilogue, that when you imagine this scenario, that is actually something I also thought of a couple of times, like doing something, doing something thinking nobody's watching you, but then, you know, everything is recorded, all your movements are recorded. And so one day anyone can blackmail you for one thing you did on a Tuesday evening while you are not in your hometown. But then you couple this, with this religion of science. And this is where I would yeah. like to hear a little more from you, like as a doctor, but also someone who believes in the Hippocratic versus technocratic medicine, right? You stress the mistake we make in having this new religious of science. So could, could you speak yeah. more to that? So I talk in the book about scientism, which is, you could think of it as the religious conception of science. And you can also think of it as the totalitarian conception of science. It's the premise that, first of all, science is the only valid form of knowledge, which is not a scientific postulate. It's a, it's a philosophical assumption that's smuggled in the back door of scientism. So scientism has to be sort of dishonest and mendacious because it, it has to hide its basic first principle. But the, this idea that knowledge coming from other spheres like ethics or religion or philosophy Anything that's not empirically verifiable using the methods of science is sort of just ruled out, right? We're, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to introduce that into public debate. We're not going to consider it like real knowledge. So like all totalitarian regimes, this is what totalitarian systems do. Scientism monopolizes what counts as knowledge and punishes anyone who attempts to put forward information, arguments, ideas, that is not grounded in that particular ideology. Scientism is, has to be distinguished from science itself. Science is a collection of methods for investigating the natural world that can yield very fruitful results, but the results of science are always provisional. The characteristic feature of a scientific theory is falsifiability, right? You have to be able to say, if the following were to be found in an experiment, my, my hypothesis would be disproven. But what happens with scientism is that you create a sort of priestly class of so-called experts. And of course, it's always those in power who can anoint various individuals to be the, the experts that we have to listen to, right? So not even all scientists have power within a, a system characterized by scientism, like we saw during the pandemic, only the ones who have been anointed by the powers that be. The most ridiculous example of this, of course, is 
Anthony Fauci himself complaining about any criticism and saying anyone who basically criticizes me is criticizing science itself. I mean, this is a this is a sort of maniacal, crazy proposition that he you know he was able to say with a perfectly straight face. So the the anointed experts claim a monopoly on knowledge. They punish dissenters, and this is a very effective strategy at controlling the information environment and controlling anyone who would attempt to dissent from your particular policies. All you have to do is claim the mantle of science or claim the endorsement of certain publicly recognized institutions of science, even if they're politicized, like our public health agencies were, even if they're compromised by conflict of interest ties to pharma and other moneyed interests that stood to gain from particular pandemic response policies. And so what happened during COVID was basically the institution of a totalitarian conception of science. And and I think this is another example of what we saw during the 20th century. All totalitarian systems during the 20th century claimed to be grounded in science. Marxism in the pseudoscience of Marxist economics, Nazism in the pseudoscience of racial eugenics. And we're seeing the same thing today, which is why I opened the book. You talk about the epilogue, which is Seattle 2030. It's me imagining if the technologies that are currently available are widely adopted over the next few years, what life might look like a few years from now and for an average citizen in an average city in the United States. But I begin the book back with a discussion of Nuremberg and the eugenics movement in the 20th century that led to the doctor's trials at Nuremberg that led to the creation of the Nuremberg Code, the first principle of which was informed consent, the very principle that was violated during the pandemic by vaccine mandates. And I do this to try to connect, and I draw on the work of Del Noche, as you pointed out, to try to connect some of the central features of the totalitarian systems of the 20th century to some of the things that we started seeing developing during the pandemic. This is is also connected to the issue of censorship. Eric Vogelin, who I also mentioned at one point in the book, was another 20th century political theorist who studied the totalitarian systems of the last century. And he, he said the central feature of all totalitarian systems is actually not concentration camps, it's not barbed wire fences. It's not men in jackboots, like secret police, like the KGB, or the Gestapo. It's not even mass surveillance. Although, as I argue in The New Abnormal, we do have systems of mass surveillance that have been operating now, surveilling ordinary Americans and their, their movements and their activities. But as horrifying as all those things are, he said the central feature of all totalitarian systems is the prohibition of questions, right? That totalitarian system monopolizes what counts as knowledge. And if you raise your hand and you say, well, hey, wait a minute, I don't know if, I don't know if history is moving inevitably toward proletarian revolution that will overthrow the current economic order and lead to a communist society of peace and justice. I'm just not sure about that. The communist doesn't argue with you, right? The Nazi doesn't argue with you. They just say you're infected with bourgeois consciousness or you're infected with Jew consciousness. You are by definition irrational and you're talking nonsense. And so shut up. And if you don't shut up, then we're going to put you in the concentration camp. Then we're going to steamroll you. Well, today with sophisticated methods of censorship, you can put someone literally in a digital gulag 
Yeah. Right. You could type all the things that you want. You could write all the articles you want, but no one's actually going to see them. So you're effectively silenced using these technologies. You're not going to be selling your book. You're not going to run the ads on Facebook yeah. for your books. They're not going to promote you on YouTube. Back to the this difference between the the religious view of science also alters the role of that the way we are. I don't know if it's related, but you talk of the way we are looking at medicine. Yeah. And you talk about the contemporary Gnosticism, and you're not the only one yeah. analyzing today's word and talking about Gnosticism. But it looks like this word that is doing everything to protect the body, it's also at the same time the same word that could do anything to the body. That's right. right. It... So in, in the section of the book called Hipp Hippocratic versus Technocratic Medicine, which you mentioned, I contrast two competing views of what medicine is and, and by extension, what public health is and is for. The traditional Hippocratic view sees the human body, the human organism, as an integrated whole that has its own particular ends and purposes. The, heart, the heart's purpose is to pump blood in a particular way. The kidney's purpose is to filter the blood in a particular way and to make urine. Every part of the body has its own intrinsic ends that we characterize as healthy and the body as a whole when these things are working in unison and functioning as an organic whole also has um, its own characteristic health. And the physician's job is to assist the body in achieving those ends. So nature itself is the norm of health and the physician's job is to, to remove obstacles to health. So For example, we say that a surgeon closes a surgical wound with stitches, but he doesn't actually heal the surgical wound. He just puts the tissues next to one another and makes sure that they're disinfected so that the body's own intrinsic healing ability can take over. Antibiotics do not actually rid the body of an infection. What they do is lower the infectious load sufficiently that our own immune system can take over and do the rest of the work. Right. So the, the physician and the medical techniques assist the body in what the body should already be capable of doing. That's why if you give antibiotics to someone who's too severely immunocompromised because of advanced AIDS, for example, the antibiotics won't work because you need the body's own immune system to be functioning normally. On this traditional view of medicine, the way to respond to a novel pathogen like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that caused the COVID-19 pandemic is basically strengthen the immune defenses, right? And protect those who are especially vulnerable. You strengthen the immune system through diet, exercise, vitamin D, through vaccines when they are safe and effective and indicated for a particular population, perhaps, and through intervening and helping those people who get sick with early treatment. The technocratic view of medicine does not see the body as a well-working whole, It sees the body basically as just a raw collection of parts or a raw collection of stuff that we can manipulate any which way we want, right? So if you have a person coming to a physician saying, look, my reproductive system is working beautifully and actually my body as a whole is functioning beautifully, but in my mind, right, there's this Gnosticism involves a strict separation between mind and body in my mind. I've come to believe that I was born in the wrong body. So I want you to amputate my genitals and sort of refashion and remake my body so that I can appear to be 
a member of the opposite sex. This makes no sense on the traditional view of medicine. The last thing that a good physician, a good Hippocratic physician would do would be to amputate a healthy body part and make it more dysfunctional, more prone to infection, more prone to serious complications. It just doesn't make any sense. You would want to intervene at the level of the, of the mind for that individual to, to bring their mental life into congruence with the reality of their body. I could cite many other examples of this yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, sure. technocratic approach. And and at the level of public health, I talk- But the, why not picking the most controversial one? Well, you yeah, know, I, I, <laughs> I, I tend to go, I don't know. I tend to go no, right for I think these it's things. No, but it's clear. It's like, right, is the body, is this the natural, where your body would naturally go if everything was functioning properly? That's the way you describe it. I think it's clear yeah. that way. And I want to direct our audience to- Hippocratic Society's website so that they can understand that you're also involved in reforming medicine. Uh, yeah, I think you're a member. Thanks for mentioning the Hippocratic Society as well. We're trying to get chapters of all medical students. We're piloting a few chapters this year at various medical schools, but really trying to rally around, you know, not necessarily lightning rod issues like the one I just mentioned, no, exactly, but just, but, just yeah. a sound philosophy of, of medicine and looking at many of the contemporary challenges to a sound philosophy of, of medicine. And what medicine is for, exactly. right? So, yeah, no, and also because we all want doctors that are, you know, one of the reasons you tell your secrets to the doctors is that they're going to tell you the truth. Exactly. Respond. So you we all want hope. doctors that are free yeah. to tell us what they really think. And we want doctors that are treating our bodies as healthy parts of who we are and not just objects that can be manipulated. So because this is, I think, everyone's hope, further reason to appreciate your work and your dedication to this topic. There are a thousand different things that I would like to ask you, but you're a busy man and you've already dedicated us a lot of time. I only want to close with one question that has been on my mind and I'm curious if you have a particular insight as a psychiatrist. So you talk about the digital technology of today and how this can be a big problem in this mass surveillance system that we live in. But it's also the abolition of privacy. Yeah. It's the abolition of privacy that has been misused as a term in particular in this country to make everything possible. At the same time, we live in a world where there's nothing private. At the same time, we had the secret with doctors and lawyers and priests forever. It's always been there, right? Something was secret about it. In law, we even have a statute of limitation in every possible system that I know where, you know, you don't go back forever. Like when you're punishing someone because they're what they do, there's a limit. And so the question I have is particularly, I'm particularly interested in the side of a psychiatrist is, are we as human beings wired to have our life public? So the potential of always being recorded, yeah. a picture taken, someone, someone is recording. Does that have an impact on our on the way our mental health is working today? Are there studies? Is this something yeah. you can... Now I'm thinking even of a private diary. It's meant to be private. And people are posting yeah. many times their opinions in the same way, but yeah. So. No, it's a great question. And the full answer to that question would take another hour, but just very quickly, a couple of thoughts. Number one, there is a lot of research on the relationship between social media use and mental health. And particularly for adolescents and definitely for children uh, and adolescents. 
and especially for girls, there's a negative relationship between, there's a basically linear correlation between bad mental health outcomes and time on social media with visually based social media apps like Instagram or Snapchat probably being worse than text-based social media like Facebook or Twitter, but Facebook and Twitter, or Facebook and X uh, also have problems associated with them as well. And so I think there is, there's certainly in human beings, we're hardwired to connect with other people. And in the absence of face-to-face connections, which we were deprived of during much of the pandemic in many places, people will seek to affiliate online. And online affiliation is better than no affiliation, you could say. But when it begins to replace face-to-face affiliation, it's, it's a very bad substitute. It's a very bad counterfeit. And getting a little dopamine spritz from likes or retweets or, you know, thumbs up on the photo that I just posted of myself while I'm on vacation is no substitute for face-to-face interaction, affirmation, friendship, and so forth. So I think we're in danger of taking a, a very basic innate human drive, which is a drive toward sociality, the drive toward affiliation, the drive toward feeling a part of a group or part of something larger than myself, which is as deep as any human need is. We're, we're social animals from top to bottom. And misdirecting it towards forms of quote unquote connecting that don't actually fulfill those needs and don't actually lead to health and human flourishing and do lead to the abolishment of privacy. And I think the first thing to say about privacy is that most people aren't aware of the degree to which their privacy has already been violated. They just don't know. Most people don't know that the CDC used cell phone tracking data during the pandemic to look at how many people gathered at schools and churches and other places during lockdowns to to see about compliance. That data was supposed to have been anonymized, so you couldn't identify particular individuals associated with those, those phone numbers. But some researchers from Princeton showed that with only four data points, you could very easily re-identify those individuals. So that was, that was a level of intrusion and surveillance, literally monitoring where we were at any given moment, who we were with, who we were speaking with or gathering with and associating with at any given moment. And the whole internet basically operates on this principle of data harvesting. Now that's how the internet is monetized. Anything that you don't pay for on the internet is basically making money by scraping your data, packaging it up and selling it to third parties, usually advertisers. But in this case, they sold it to the CDC. So they may sell it to governments, foreign and domestic, which may have good intentions, may have bad intentions. But I think most people aren't aware the degree to which their privacy has already been compromised in this way. Nobody reads those terms of service when you click the button on the new app. Or the I new think product. that Europe has much, much stricter regulation on this. That, on the, that's on the, my impression as well. Yeah, the Wild West is still, the United States is a, still a bit of the Wild West when it comes to privacy. So we could look would, to would Europe a policy, for some help would a, would a policy, one. I don't know, I can't remember if you recommended this, but like the idea that data gathered for good reasons should be destroyed. Like things yeah. get, you know, things about you that were recorded when you were in high school, including whatever opinion you expressed on a paper when you were, you know, your first exam in philosophy should not be a public disposal 
20 years later when you're applying for a job. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I don't think data should be able to be, other people's data should be able to be monetized. I think you own your own data. But do we? No. Well, no, I think I, we don't, unfortunately. Okay. But I, I think that should be the basic principle behind legislation to deal with this, with this issue. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the way things work right now. We decided to have an internet that was monetized through selling your data in order to advertise to you. I think a better decision would have been if you want to access things on the internet, you have to pay for them. That would have been more expensive for people, but you, you pay one way or the other. And right now we're paying yeah. with a compromise of, of our privacy and we're giving powerful organizations and public and private actors, including our own governments, too much power over surveilling us and, and nudging yeah, and you us. Mentioned, one on thing that, that is scaring me a bit is that you mentioned a potential climate, the climate change as a potential new reason for lockdowns. I don't know if it's going to be lockdowns, but I know that some, um, some journalists in my home country are reporting how climate change policies could make the, ha the costs of owning still one of those mm -hmm. old Italian beautiful houses impossible for Italians to bear. And so very rich foreign investors could Somehow buy these policies out. to save the world always benefit the 1% of the 1%. It's funny how that works out. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, Aaron, that you're not one of those 1% and I'm not because I know that we like to have a clean conscience at the end of the day, no matter what it costs, right? And, uh, and you did a great job in just standing for what you believed was the right thing to do. You wrote an amazing book. You have your Substack. All the links to what I know you are doing are going to be in the description of the podcast so that people can keep following you. And as I said at the beginning, I really hope that you will be here again soon. Thanks, Mariana. I look forward to it. We'll do it again. Thank you for your time, Aaron. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, Remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.